Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we'll be talking to a seismologist who has used the relative silence of the pandemic to gain a better understanding of the cacophony of noises associated with human activity. But first, a key challenge facing the developers of quantum technologies is finding the best possible materials from which to create their devices. So it's crucial that quantum technologists can work closely with material scientists. Jason Smith is the editor-in-chief of the journal Materials for Quantum Technology, which is published by IOP Publishing. Based at the University of Oxford, he has a foot in both camps, and he talks to Physics World's Margaret Harris about the need for greater communication between the quantum and materials communities. So Jason, um, you're a material scientist at University of Oxford, and you're really interested in, in materials that are being used in quantum technologies. Uh, that's right. Yes, actually, I, I trained as a physicist, so I did my PhD in in physics. Uh, seems like many years ago now, but I've been working in the materials department uh, in Oxford for the past sixteen years or so. Okay, and what would you say are the main materials that are currently being used as platforms for quantum technologies? Well, um, as I'm sure uh, your readers will know, there's lots of different platforms for for t- uh, quantum technologies, and there are several different sort of devices and applications that are being researched for, for quantum technologies. So I'll, I'll, I'll focus on what, what are probably the main ones, the most developed ones. So in terms of building quantum computers, which is perhaps one of the, the application that people think of most readily in terms of quantum technologies, the sort of big, exciting uh, application area. Superconducting materials are obviously very important. Most of the work so far has been uh, done using aluminium as a, as a superconductor. And one of the main reasons for that is that um, it's easy to fabricate uh, devices and you can also get a, a, a nice oxide uh, material, which is required to make a, a bit of the device called a Josephson junction, uh, which is what turns uh, the uh, superconducting circuit into a qubit. Uh, so that's a very important uh, material. For There are other materials which are used as hosts for qubits, so uh, semiconductor materials uh, like silicon has been researched for for a long time. Obviously, that's a very important technological material for for computing. Uh, And there are different ways that you can use silicon uh, uh, to build uh, quantum devices. You can um, uh, implant impurities into the silicon, so phosphorus in silicon has been studied for a long time. But you can also make structures called quantum dots uh, in, in silicon which means applying electrical gates so that you can trap electrons into specific regions of the of the device. And it's really the ability to uh, be able to make these devices very reproducibly um, and, and very accurately in silicon, which drives a lot of the research uh, into this area. Uh, diamond, you mentioned, um, that's a, a potentially important material for quantum technologies, uh, primarily there because of the, the defects in diamond uh, can have very nice coherent spin properties, which you can use as uh, qubits. Um, and you can start to think about engineering those uh, uh, defects within uh, the diamond to be able to make devices. Um, another very important technology area for uh, especially, especially quantum computing is that of ion traps. Now, uh, when you 
talk about trapped ions being used as qubits. They're floating in free space, held in electromagnetic traps. And so the materials are a little bit more distant, uh, if you like. But again, silicon is important for making chips on which the uh, electrode structures and circuits are, um, are deposited in order to be able to make these kind of suspended circuits of, of, of trapped ions. And there's another, a number of other materials that are becoming important in trapped ion quantum computing uh, as well, primarily in the area of photonics and things like that. If you want to be able to integrate devices, there's lots of materials challenges to, uh, to address. So I suppose th those are some of the highlights, but uh, materials are obviously used um, uh, in all sorts of different ways to be able to develop uh, uh, quantum technologies. And, and, and that's just a few examples. And what about the, the future? I mean, what other materials are sort of emerging onto the scene and might become more important as they become more developed? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, and I think probably for each of the examples, sort of technology platforms and areas that, that, that I mentioned, there, there are new materials uh, coming on the scene. Certainly, if you want to think about the sort of richness, the number of new materials which are coming on the scene, the, the, the materials where you're looking at using defects as uh, qubits are particularly important because there's a lot of different materials that you can potentially uh, use um, uh, in, in that respect. There are also um, new superconducting materials uh, being looked at, which may have uh, advantages compared to uh, aluminium. So um, uh, uh, niobium is used and uh, uh, tantalum has been uh, explored very, very recently as an alternative. And there are some very new sort of ideas being explored, uh, such as topological qubits, which is a kind of different way of making qubits where your, your qubit is protected by the sort of topological state uh, of, of your system. And, and different materials, uh, such as indium arsenide, which has a strong spin-orbit coupling, uh, are being explored for those kinds of things. And you know what are so that's we've mainly talked about um, quantum computing. What are some of the about materials that are important? In other areas of, of quantum technologies, you know, quantum sensing, uh, quantum communication. I suppose is another one that, that's that's coming up. Yes, um, uh, good question. So for for quantum sensing, you're often talking about using uh, qubits in a different way because you're talking about using the sort of superposition and coherence of uh, qubits uh, as 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 sensors. Um, but I suppose there are different ways of doing uh, quantum sensing uh, as well. You can talk about single photon detectors, for example, and superconductors are uh, becoming very popular for, um, uh, for single photon detection. So, for example, uh, niobium nitride used for single photon detectors, superconducting nanowire single photon detectors is, is, is a common material. Let's think about some other examples. Again, diamond. Um, uh, nitrogen vacancy defects in diamond are now being used for quantum sensing uh, applications. For telecommunications, then uh, you start to open up the whole field of, of photonics. And of course, uh, the materials which we most readily associate uh, with, with photonics, at least in terms of light generation and detection, are, um, are semiconductors. So materials like gallium nitride, indium gallium nitride, uh, can be used uh, to make single photon sources. Which, which would be used for, um, for quantum communications and potentially quantum computing as well. If you can make indistinguishable photons uh, with your uh, devices, then, then you have a means to do room temperature quantum computing using linear optics. So that's quite a big topic area as well. And of course, all the different materials that you would use for sort of waveguides 
uh, for photonics as well. So you can start to build complicated optical circuits uh, in um, uh, materials which are optically transparent. So depending on what wavelength of light you want to use, you would use different materials potentially uh, for that. So silicon is used for infrared light and wider uh, band gap materials like gallium phosphide, perhaps for uh, for visible light. And what are some of the key challenges that need to be overcome for these materials and also the devices made from them um, to reach their potential? I mean, this could be this could be technological, but it could also be sort of you know cultural in terms of not every physicist knows these materials in, in as much detail as, as someone like you does who's worked with them for for you know, more than ten years. Um, well, physicists are pretty uh, um, uh, adaptable folks in my in my experience, and um, you know they 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 really tend to do their homework <laughs> when they're engaged in research. So uh, very often they are aware of the materials which are uh, which are available. Um, so it, on on the research front, I think you tend to find a very wide range of materials being looked into for different things. Uh, uh, but I guess uh, the field tends to narrow a bit when you want to uh, start to really sort of build. Uh, technologies out of it, because of course, exploring new materials and developing new materials is is pretty hard work, and it can take many years before a new material, which in theory has potential to be important in a in a particular area, can be sort of refined to the point where it's really useful, and you can start to build uh, a full full devices uh, out of it. So I think the challenges uh, in in that respect are are fairly sort of uh, straightforward in the, in the sense that the the research is 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 being done i think there is a lot to be done in terms of materials research to be able to develop fully functional quantum technologies so for example one theme that you see coming up all the time in in various quantum technologies is that of defects in materials so for for uh, quantum technologies particularly quantum computing what you want is materials to be extremely quiet so that your uh, a qubit that is not affected by noise, which is generated uh, by materials, and this tends to mean uh, that you need to really minimise the number of uh, defects which occur within your material, because they can cause uh, a random noise, which would which would affect the coherence of your of your qubit. And of course, this can be not just in the bulk of materials, but it can be on the surfaces of materials and the interfaces between materials as well. And they can be really particularly difficult to uh, passivate to the point where you really don't, they're, they're very low noise um, uh, uh, systems. So that's, that's, I think, a recurring topic, which probably is relevant to the majority of, of, of materials being used in quantum technologies to one extent or, or another. And of course, being able to fabricate devices out of the materials, the processes which you use to fabricate devices, they have to be very precise. Especially if you're making sort of microscopic devices, you want to make very pure materials which have very low inhomogeneity, so they're very uniform. So you can make lots of qubits which are all the same uh, in your system. That's very important too. Uh, and there are also challenges in the sort of theoretical understanding of, of some of these systems and the modelling of the materials uh, is something which needs to go hand in hand with the. Um, uh, the the materials development itself to be able to make sure that we fully understand uh, all of the different phenomena which are which are at play, and indeed to be able to engineer the materials as well to make better materials which will um, which will perform these difficult functionalities more effectively. Okay, now you're the editor in chief of a, a journal published by IOP Publishing called uh, Materials and Quantum Technologies. 
And uh, that, that journal launched just, just last year, I think. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. In your editorial for the, the launch, you say that your goal is for readers with an interest in quantum technology to understand the strengths and limitations of different materials and methods, and then for readers with an expertise in, in those materials and methods to better understand the needs of the different quantum technology applications. Mm -hmm. If you could communicate just one lesson to each of those groups, you know, quantum technologists on the one hand, materials experts on the other, what would it be? Well, I think it would be the same message to both groups and it would be talk to each other, right? Because <laughs> what, what, what you find, of course, when you have a research community and you also have an industrial uh, community is that there can be a tendency for them to start talking slightly different languages. And of course, maybe they come from different backgrounds uh, as well. The people who are you know, working in industry are building the technologies may not come from uh, that, that research background. So dialogue is absolutely vital because people have to know what the relevant uh, concepts are and they have to be able to benefit from the experience of people who are working in the other camps. And I think synergy between the camps is absolutely essential if you, actually, if, if you want to succeed, if you want to have a, a quantum technologies industry, which is built on really, really solid foundations and can keep growing and developing uh, uh, into the future, as it looks like it should, um, then there needs to be communication with the research base, but also the research base needs to be able to understand uh, what are the important things for them to be working on so that they can you know, be, be, be doing the right kinds of research uh, that will support uh, both the existing industries and the generation of new uh, uh, companies going forwards. So I think you know dialogue is 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 the most uh, important thing, um, so that people can really understand as much as is possible the sort of big picture and be able to sort of identify which part of that they they want to work on, but in a really informed way. It's interesting you mentioned industry because I mean you're, you're absolutely right. There is a lot more industrial activity right now with a large number of of startups and spinouts in quantum technologies, even than just a couple of years ago. What are some of the challenges associated with with that transition from the being in the exclusive dominion or almost exclusive dominion of physicists and universities and research labs into a more commercially oriented world? The requirements change obviously when you are moving from a research lab. And, and going into that more sort of commercial industrial uh, world, um, things have to work more uh, reproducibly. So obviously in, in research labs, oftentimes we report things when they work uh, occasionally because they reveal a new science and a and, and new understanding. And that's enough to be able to uh, uh, publish our, our work. It has to be reproducible, of course. We have to check that, it's, that it can be done again, but it doesn't have to necessarily work every single time time to be able to do that because of course there are variations you get fabrication of devices and things like that which are quite difficult to pin down and you wouldn't try to pin those down so that the the yield of a device so to speak is um uh, sufficiently high that you would be able to make it as a product but these things become very important when when you go into into industry and so just the sort of um i guess the risk profile has to change going into industry you're not doing such High risk research, uh, by and large, especially in small companies, which are very uh, focused on being able to bring a, a product or products to to market. You have to be really very focused uh, with, within those environments, and you have to focus on the things that you know work. So it's a very different style of working, I think, um, uh, particularly in spinouts uh, compared with university research labs and, and, and other research labs, uh, in the sense that the risk profile changes a lot. 
Um, and of course, with that comes the um, possibility that, as I said before, that you know um, the conversation sort of diverges a little bit, and people sort of uh, uh, don't talk to each other quite as much as they should, and and, and things like that. So I think that's that's one of the one of the main risks. Of course, there's also a risk in terms of sort of uh, a personnel because um, you need people to be able to go into these new companies, and you need people who really understand the science. Uh, to be able to do that so that they can be effective in, in, in building the technologies. So we really need to make sure that we keep um, uh, a very, very robust sort of training uh, provision um, in, in, the, in the quantum science so that we've got plenty of people coming through our universities which, who have the skills to be able to go out and populate these industries as, as they grow. It's good to hear you talk about the industrial side because I know that you have some experience of that yourself. You're the founder and director of a startup called Oxford High Q yes. that's developing chemical and nanoparticle sensors. Does that have any connection to quantum technology or is that a different different, fi- different pie rather you've got your, your fingers in? It does in? have a connection to quantum technologies. So uh, in my research, I've been working on uh, quantum technologies for about 20 years or so. And as part of that, I've... Um, been developing devices called optical microcavities, which allow you to confine light into a small volume of space as a means to uh, control the interaction between light and matter. So many of these uh, qubit systems that we're talking about and architectures for quantum communications and quantum computing um, rely on the ability to be able to transfer information from uh, solid state systems uh, to optical systems uh, back and forth. So uh, this sort of transport of, uh, of quantum information between uh, these uh, different degrees of freedom is, is an important aspect of it. And so these optical microcavities have kind of been uh, a part of my research portfolio for, for quite a long time now. And of course, um, if you're developing systems which uh, allow you to control the light-matter interaction at this sort of atomic level, uh, or single electron level, if you like, then uh, they are naturally very good for use as as sensors. And so we use optics in sensors all the time, and we need to be able to sense chemicals and, and nanoparticles, which are small enough objects to be able to uh, fit inside these microscopic devices. So what we did with o- Oxford HiQ is we we set up a company that would allow us to use this these sort of components that we've been uh, developing these devices we've been developing for quantum technologies, but in a slightly different way um, for something which many people would not consider to be a quantum technology because it doesn't involve qubits uh, at all, but uses those devices to perform uh, very, very sensitive uh, detection of chemicals and nanoparticles. And finally, you, you talked about training a little bit ago mm. um, and the importance of, of getting getting um, new people into the field, you know, what would be your, your advice to someone who's just finishing their undergraduate, just finishing their PhD and wanting to get into you know, quantum technologies, especially perhaps with a materials angle to it? Um, read widely. I think, I think that's always, I think, good advice for anyone at the beginning of their career uh, like that. Um, and it really is you know, such a broad and exciting field which is, which is developing. Um, uh, and I think... Uh, um, being able to kind of get a, an overview of what's going on and find out what what excites you the most and what areas you, you want to work in is something that you know you really have the opportunity to do uh, very early on. Um, now, you know, uh, materials has uh, obviously very very strong experimental 
uh, uh, emphasis, but there's also quite a lot of theoretical work uh, uh, that, that, that goes into that. Some people gravitate more towards experiments. Some people gravitate more towards uh, theory. But there really is a, you know, there's, there's, there's a huge a range of opportunities for um, uh, early stage, early career researchers uh, to, to carve their niche, if you like, find their niche in terms of what, what they want to do. Um, and I think, you know, as with all research, it gives you great opportunities in terms of um, uh, being able to uh, work in different countries, um, experience different cultures and things like that. I think the thing that I have always felt in terms of uh, um, advice for early stage uh, researchers is not to um, restrict yourself uh, uh, and not to, not to uh, tread too narrow a path too early on. There's plenty of time for that later on. Jason Smith, thank you very much. Thank you, Margaret. That was Jason Smith in conversation with Margaret Harris. If you'd like to read much more about quantum science and technology, Margaret has put together a fabulous briefing on the topic that's free to read on the Physics World app. Just click on the magazine tab on the Physics World website to find out more about how to access the quantum science and technologies briefing. At various times during the pandemic, noises made by normal human activity have been subdued. At a local beauty spot here in Bristol, the roar of a nearby motorway was reduced to the sound of a few individual cars, and the drone of regular flights into Bristol Airport was replaced by birdsong. Jordi Diaz is a seismologist based at Geosciences Barcelona, which is part of the Spanish Scientific Research Council. And he was in the perfect position to study this drop in noise in Barcelona. Before the pandemic struck, he and his colleagues installed a network of seismic monitors in and around the city. Jordi talks to Physics World's James Dacey about what the sensors revealed and how the results could be useful well beyond seismology. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, you helped to create a seismic network in Barcelona, which included having some of the sensors in schools. What were the main aims of, of setting up that network in the first place? Yeah, in fact, we started the network far before the, the, the onset of this pandemic. So the idea of the network itself was to look which information we can get using a seismic network inside the city. We knew or we supposed that we can follow the human activity, but we also wanted to know if it was possible or not using ambient noise to get information on the, on the geological structure beneath, uh, beneath the city. And then by, let's say, serendipity or whatever you want to, to, to say that, uh, uh, the, the pandemic uh, comes there. And then, of course, we had a great opportunity to to see uh, the to see how the seismic data can be used to to monitor the the, the level of activity within the city. Uh, the fact that we use uh, put the stations in in high schools was also because we have the aim to show our, our science uh, the the sciences to to the young students because here in Spain, well, is not the main topic in in high school. 
And how did the um, the students react? You know, when they see this equipment. I mean, did did you yourself did you go into the schools before the pandemic and and, and did you give talks about earth science and seismology? Yes, this is a thing. In fact, that uh, I'm doing for the last something like maybe ten, 10 years. Here we have more than ten schools involved at the same time. And yeah, before the lockdown, I had time to go to four or five of them. Then it becomes everything much more complicated because even when the open the station the schools reopened, uh, well, it was difficult to, to to fix the schedules and all the stuff. In general, when they are quite surprised, you know, even before the lockdown, you can by one side you can monitor the activity of the classes you know, of the school. You see the 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 rest times uh, in mid morning or whatever. You see the times they move from one class to the other. You see all this kind of stuff. And in the other side, if you are lucky, of course, in a city there is a lot of noise, so the chances to to record seismics, uh, I mean, earthquakes, are not so high. But still, very often you can get uh, a earthquake from Japan or earthquake from Chile uh, that reach uh, the the city here at thousands of kilometers, and and then uh, make a shy a shaking of of the building, which of course is very tiny, but it's enough to 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 be recorded by this rather simple instrument. So, so is is it easy enough to you know, to look at this seismic data and, and to be able to see within that the human activity compared with uh, what you just described, so natural seismic activity from from plate tectonics? Seismic data is a little bit as music. I mean, if you look at different frequencies, you you heard different things. So uh, so, and, and we know that human activity is uh, most of the times between, let's say, one two hertz to to ten twenty, and even sometimes even more than that. So uh, while, for example, if you like to to look from recordings from distant events, you can go you you must go to lower lower frequencies. So playing with filters, it's. Uh, we can, of course, it's not exact, uh, it's not clean, but we can. We know that different kind of signals will be recorded in different frequency bands, and then helps us to to highlight uh, one effect or the other. So I, I know you you mentioned just now, so that the pandemic itself that provided a unique opportunity in a way to to look at the city um, with far less human activity than usual due to the the lockdown restrictions. So when you looked at that data and how it changed from the pre-COVID situation, uh, what were some of the most striking things that you noticed in the seismic data? Yeah, uh, when you look at the level, the amplitude of the signals in this frequency band I was referring here to to tenors, something like this, and you you look at the mean uh, the mean level of, of amplitude in, in in a while, let's say you you see a huge drop uh, when the the lockdown was uh, was started. Of course, this is not surprising. This is let's say logical because at these frequencies, most of the vibration that we are recording come from the metro system. I mean, the underground system comes from uh, people moving around all this stuff. And this becomes becomes stopped, and then we have this 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 height uh, drop. Uh, the let's say the fact is not surprising. Nevertheless, give us opportunity to quantify the degree of uh, activity in each phase. You know, here in Spain, and I guess in most of the places, we have different phases of lockdown. Now, you for two weeks we were said, okay, you 
you don't go to work, uh, but still things can be some some degree of activity was there. Then it was two weeks of uh, total lockdown, then a release period, and you can follow all all of these phases just looking for for seismic data. So I know one thing you say in the paper, which uh, we can share a link to that paper on the on the Physics World website. So it's a paper in the journal Solid Earth. Mm-hmm. So so one thing you mention is the possible uh, advantage of using this to see how effective lockdown measures have been uh, and comparing it with, say, commercial data, for example, um, data from companies such as um, Google and Facebook um, and Apple, who may be able to provide some, say, transport data, for example, which shows the same things. Um, But with seismic data, you're not then relying on companies. I mean, is is that the main advantage or are there other uh, advantages as well of this data? Yeah, I think this is probably the main advantage and also the fact that we are, when you, when Google provides you first this big companies provide the data, well, in this particular case, but nobody knows if they will, but the data is not open generally. So this is the main one. The second is the fact that they provide you a graphic saying this is for transportation nodes, this is for residential areas, this is for uh, groceries and all this stuff, but you don't have any control on how this has been built. Of course, it has been built properly, I'm sure of that. But, but if you want to go to the details, it becomes uh, impossible or very difficult. So on contrary, seismic data is open in most of the cases and uh, it's open and if not, it's easy to, to, to become open. And then you can manage by yourself looking at particular locations, looking at the particular frequencies. I mean, you are more free to work with the data and not, uh, not. this one thing. And in particular, um, in this study in Barcelona, the fact that we had a high number of stations within the city, we saw uh, well little that we saw in that the general trend is consistent for all of the sites. But then uh, also we saw that uh, you must be careful in specific say, sites because they can be affected by specific problems. And in terms of tracking the effectiveness of the lockdown measures. Uh, were you actually working officially with uh, authorities or was that just something that, you know, it, it was an idea that emerged from the research? Uh, I would say that in the main crisis of, I mean, the moment of the crisis, uh, there were probably more focused on the, not so much on the Google, but on the telephone mobility data. And then uh, we don't have, we don't have had uh, let's say a specific role in the in the prevention in the civil protection or whatever but uh, we hope that uh, we will have time to analyze more more quiet if uh, it's if they think that uh, could be useful for a future for i mean i will not say future pandemics i hope there are not so much future <laughs> <Definitely> pandemics, <not. laughs> at least not soon but i'd say for for something to to be to be developed later and have you seen since the lockdown restrictions have started to ease slightly, have you seen the noise levels go back to what they were like before um, the COVID um, pandemic started or, or is it still far below that? No, they are uh, in general, they are remaining at, uh, lower. I mean, a little bit lower in particular the minima uh, than, than before. Of course, this has to be taken with caution. Right now, uh, the stations in the high schools are no more there because the projects, uh, we, we, we recovered them by, by the end of 
2020. Uh, but we still have four or five permanent stations in the city that we monitor here and there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's still not the same, the same level. In particular, in these last times from last November, I think something like that, or late, late October or early November, there was a night uh, curfew uh, stated here in Barcelona. And you can also follow this change in the data. Uh, in particular, you can clearly see that the noise, I mean, the, the vibrations are lower late once the, the this kind of curfew was was on. And you know, hopefully, the pandemic one day soon you know, will be over. Mm-hmm. So, at hopefully. that point, is there any other reason to to track human activities um, using this seismic data? You know, can it be used for? things like planning and architecture to, to help in the design of cities? Is it, does it serve any other useful purpose? Yeah, well, in fact, uh, there is a classical, let's say, use of seismicity in the cities, which is uh, provide uh, technical, geotechnical data to, to, you know, there are in all the, let's say, modern cities, there are, uh, in, I mean, in those which are in areas prone to seismic uh, activity, uh, there are hazard maps, which are becomes and that uh, are used to 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 fix the rules on how the buildings has to be has to be done. So this is a classical classical use of seismics that uh, that we know it. Uh, but now we have uh, we see also that we can use that, for example, in the same way that there are other devices to measure the density of cars in an avenue or in the entry of the city or whatever. Also, you know, there are some people that uh, looking at longer scale are right now trying to to make uh, a relationship between the seismic i mean this this anthropogenic noise and uh, the 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 degree of economical activity in some specific places so also beside that uh, you can use uh, well to the seismics to monitor specific activities for example here in barcelona our institute we are not far from the football uh, stadium. When people use it to go to the stadium, we could uh, we regularly uh, record people uh, celebrating special goals or things like this, which uh, can have some kind of scientific interest to investigate the very local area. But in my opinion, it's much more important because you get access to to media or I mean, or, or now in social networks or whatever, people are let's say called by the the goal government people celebrating those shaking i mean the shaking of the ground do by people <laughs> celebrating messi's goal or whatever like this <laughs> and is is you way is kind of anecdotal anecdote, i mean it's not so important from a scientific point of view but provides you an opportunity to reach people i remember yeah because there was a study wasn't there a few years ago that was in yeah. lots of the media where when, when barcelona came back against uh, paris saint-germain ah, was, yeah yeah uh, this is this is <laughs> one of our highlights <laughs> So is, is that still the, the loudest ever spike you've seen from that stadium or have there been bigger ones since? Here we don't see nothing. I mean, they played without people there. So uh, so there are no no jumps, uh, no celebrations, nothing. So, I mean, uh, there are a number of signals that uh, they are interesting to recording in the cities that uh, they are interesting to, to understand uh, from where they come precisely. You don't really know if you if it can be useful for some let's say practical uh, uh, utility right now, but in any case, it's it's nice uh, it's nice to see. We had also a paper um, stating that height 
broadband sensors are sensitive to magnetic perturbations and magnetic perturbations can come from solar storms but we show we using data here in Barcelona also that magnetic uh, that magnetic perturbations comes from the uh, activity of the metro system i mean the metro system there are leak currents these leak currents provide uh, generate magnetic fields and these magnetic fields are uh, detected by the by the seismometers because in fact the seismometers are there is a pendulum moving in a magnetic field which generates an electric current so there are some relationships that it's not always clear if there has a special utility now, but I think it's interesting to understand, and maybe uh, maybe we can we can progress in this uh, in this uh, in this way. Let's say because I know in the paper you mentioned the difference between uh, how, how the geology can affect the signal, and I think you say yeah. when, when it's uh, over sedimentary rocks you get a kind of amplification, yeah. whereas over hard rocks it's um, it's lower noise. So so why is that exactly? Yeah, let's say this is something that uh, the the it is known in in general. Let's say if you have a earthquake which arrives to a city, it will not shake uh, the same way in a place where there are uh, uh, important sediment thickness that in place which is uh, in hard rock. We had very uh, very a number a high number of examples of that. One of the most famous is in. The earthquake in the 60s, I think, in Mexico City, when it was some areas completely destroyed, and just two in the other side of the street, there was there was nothing there. So, so this is nothing something that uh, that uh, we know. But uh, of course, to have a precise map of that, you need to use a lot of stations, measured in a lot of places, and. Uh, and this affects the 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 the, the amplification of earthquakes when when a earthquake uh, wave arrives, but also the amplification of the vibration generated by humans. So sometimes uh, before relating the degree of activity or your to the amplitude of your signal, you have to take into account that uh, it may be not the same if uh, things are amplified by sediments or if you have in a station in in hard rock. And that's the interest also of our contribution that use different number of, of stations and then allows to 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 look in detail to that okay Jordi. well uh, thanks for sharing the time today to talk about the the research and and good luck developing it okay thank you a lot for your interest I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Jason Smith, Jordi Diaz, Margaret Harris, and James Dacey for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do listen to the latest Physics World Stories podcast, which explores the tantalizing possibility that Fermilab's muon G-2 experiment has found evidence of a new force. You can find stories in the podcast section of the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World